G'day all, welcome to the Hardly Adequate Podcast. My name's Desi and I'm also the current co-host for the Forensic Focus Podcast. I'm launching this along with YouTube videos and other content to help those learn about cybersecurity, particularly in the defensive space. This week, we're continuing on with our human interest series where we're talking to people who are in the industry, how their careers got them to this point and what they went through to get here. Simon, who is one of my co-workers uh, from a previous job. Welcome, Simon. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Desi. Thanks for having me. No worries, mate. All right, Simon. So what we like to start with is what's your normal day-to-day like in your current role? Yeah, thanks, Desi. So my current role is I'm a team leader for a small digital forensics and response team. So um, we manage or I manage the more complicated investigations. We do a lot of training and we're constantly uplifting and implementing new processes, um, trying to tune our existing tools and make them more efficient. Yeah, nice. Before you got to this role, we want to go back a a little bit to where you were working where you you didn't consider yourself to be in the cybersecurity industry. uh, And then what kind of flipped you into this side of things? Yeah, it was a bit of a long road for me, actually. So before I worked in a pure cyber investigator role i was i was a police officer for 16 years in new south wales police so i i came up through the ranks in in general duties doing uniform stuff then transition in detective for the last 10 years so it was a pretty slow transition i always enjoyed computers and i would do more technical investigations and that really kicked off a lot more when i was in uh the metropolitan robbery unit um this was 10 years ago now i think uh, so the charter of that unit was we targeted recidivist robbery offenders, so groups or individuals that would uh, do stick-ups at, at soft targets like news agents or bottle shops or, or things like that. Um, and, and when someone or a group of people did a spree like that, they'd get turned into a strike force and um, we'd have a team of detectives that would work out who they were and then build a case to bring them in. Um, and there was lots of... You know, there's a lot of traditional detectives, a lot of traditional police work we did there through the usual you know, surveillance and, and the kind of technical surveillance that you can do in those sorts of matters as well. Um, I started looking at things from a little bit of a different way because we would also capture phone records. And I realised there was a lot of analysis you could do on someone's call charge records or their their SMS logs to kind of look for patterns and trends and see if things lined up with the robberies. So you might have... You know, cell tower location, which put them in the same place. Or you might look for communication trends between different sets of call records for suspects who are working together to do robberies. Uh, and that kind of taught me a lot about data analysis. And I had to learn a lot of that myself. So I'd, I'd know roughly what I'd want to do with the logs. I'd have to hit Google and just work out how to get Excel to to give me the answers I needed. And so learning how to use pivot tables and VLOOKUPs and just cross-correlating different data sources as well. I yeah. don't think I did a lot of technical work was. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. was kind of how I got into log analysis, I guess. I also became the go-to guy for CCTV footage. So you'd often right. have, yeah, there'd be a random news agent in the back of Western Sydney somewhere would have an old crappy CCTV system. So I'd have to get in the back of that office and work out how the system works because the owner doesn't really want to help you. <laughs> just wants you to get out of their shop. And I'd have to work out how all these different systems worked and pull the footage out. So it was kind of a lot of problem solving through there. It's one of the things, like, once you get a reputation, you would have found this as well when you've come up through your career, is once you get a reputation for being a technical problem solver, people bring you more problems and you learn more. Yeah, definitely. And it it sounds like this was back when policing didn't have 
cyber units or or even uh, dedicated digital forensic units where they were training people on the job. Like you, like you said, you had to learn quite a lot on the job, a lot of self-study, Googling, because this kind of leads into the next question about the transition because it sounds like you transitioned while you were in the police doing a lot of this stuff. Was there, there's a lot of self-study, but was there any courses or mentors that you had that really helped you grow into that role? Mm, That's kind of how I transitioned actually. So like you said at the time, there was, we had an electronics evidence team at the time that were, they were very good, but they were short staffed. There was only about six of them for a police force of, I think, 10,000 across the whole state. It's one of the biggest police forces in the world, I think third or fourth. Um, But they didn't really have technically enabled officers in the different commands. Uh, and then one day I was flicking through the the weekly police paper thing and I found a pilot course where they were rolling out that course. They were going to do technically enabled um, officers in each command. And I made sure you get on the first pilot course for that. I called around frantically saying, this is the thing I want to do. <laughs> um, and the avenue I could see, this is when I was at robbery, is uh, this was a time when everyone was using iPhones and taking lots of photos themselves and putting them on Facebook. And the crooks at the time the police hadn't really picked up on catching people doing that too much. Uh, and one of our key pieces of evidence in these robberies was the soft target shops, like the news agents would pretty much always have CCTV and the crooks would cover their faces, but they'd still wear distinctive clothing and they generally burn the clothing afterwards. But what I realized is these kids and these young guys would take lots of you know, thousands of photos of themselves and they put them on their phones or put them on Facebook. And I realized it was an opportunity to do forensics on their phones and their computers and their Facebook accounts uh, to to get these photos and then correlate the clothing from the photos to the CCTV footage. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I managed to get on this course and it was a basic, we were trained in ADF, which was a, like a, a triaging tool for law enforcement and military. Um, and, you know, just very basic, but does it does capturing of images and stuff in the field. And it, it worked really well. And, like, we, we built quite a few briefs where we just pull the photos of them off their devices, match them up to their footage from the CCTV. You do that for three robberies in a row, whereas a very similar modus operandi, along with some other, you know, other corroborating evidence. But that that really strengthened our briefs a fair bit. And I became the person for the unit that would go out and do these forensics on phones and computers. Yeah, that's super interesting. So so having that kind of support from the higher ups to build this course to push it out to the other commands, but then the fact that you were motivated and saw the benefit in the job that you were doing kind of really drove that. Do you think that then spurred on further developments in the courses and and did you find that you were passing off that knowledge that you were learning to, to others, like when you met up at conferences or, or other courses within the police force? I definitely shared it with other detectives. Uh, things like looking at the call charge records, I, I'd teach them how to do that and how to twist the, the the data around to get the answers they needed from it. Um, and, you know, they, I, I'd do some of the technical work, but they'd pull it into their briefs. And then if I wasn't available, they'd then have to learn the skills themselves and, and do it as well. So it definitely did spread and, and detectives, especially as they saw the successes. Uh, more detectives became more interested and I'd, I'd go and help out on some of the detectives or more of the, the junior investigator courses and I'd lecture there as well just talking about what we're doing and how it was working. That's really interesting hearing New South Wales Police Force growing into this. Like roughly what year are we talking here that that all this was kind of happening? Like over what period? Yeah, this would be like I think the pilot course 
was about 12, 13, 14 years ago now. Yeah. So did you find, as you were doing the, the pilot course, because on, on the other podcast we often talk about um, policing and digital forensic units and how they've been built out over the years and it's become more of a, a discipline within the agencies. Did yeah. you find that around the world or, or did you have visibility of around the world what everyone else was doing or, or even in our own backyard, yeah. like in other policing states, were they doing a similar thing or did you kind of feel a bit isolated yeah. in New South Wales? Yeah. Police forces are very isolated. We generally don't talk to each other much and there's no budget really for, for interstate or international conferences. Um, we did meet them a bit through, more when I transferred to cybercrime. That was, so after a few years in robbery, you know, I enjoyed that sort of work and did a bit of other self-study and I transferred to the cybercrime squad. Uh, and that's when our investigations would kind of spill into other states and that's where we met the other cybercrime squads and, and saw what they were doing. There's a big variation. Like at the time, uh, Victorian police were doing it really well, uh, where they would bring in their uh, their electronic evidence experts and they'd rotate them through the detectives teams. So they're all working together in the same yeah. pod in the same building, which was really good. It was really good to see that. Um, and the other states were a little bit further behind, just simply because they didn't have they weren't as big a police force. They didn't have a bigger yeah. percentage of the budget to send that way. Yeah, and I guess it often comes down to like how much of a priority in each state it is. Like uh, mm. one of the previous episodes I was chatting to um, Frio about his time in policing and we touched on briefly on the crimes that are the most important to the public often get the most attention because people want them yeah. solved, but there's only a finite amount of budget and, and that to go into training and tools and solving those crimes that can go around so much. So we, kind of focus on the the really bad high-level stuff and a lot of potentially the low-level stuff doesn't get sorted out until maybe years, decades later because of that. Yeah. yeah. The other challenge is like policing is built around the idea of catching the crook. You can't do that in cybercrime. You can't catch the crook. Yeah. Um, my opinion is always we should move into a more proactive stance. We're more about defending people. So we're, you know, we're educating the public in how to defend themselves but also looking at our, you know, communication hubs like Telstra, for example, everyone at the moment is getting smashed with these spam calls and messages. Um, yeah. I do wonder if, I don't have visibility to know what Telstra does, but can they do more on those those ingress points? Mm. Um, I, I do know the police, in New South Wales at least, are investigating those a fair bit and they do find these houses where people have stacked up these SIM card machines. They've got like 100 SIM cards jammed in this machine and it's just doing constant phone calls all at, you know, to, to everyone. The police are doing things about those sorts of crimes, but I think we need to shift into a more proactive stance um, just to help people be better educated and learn how to defend themselves a little bit better. I think it's the only way we're really going to reduce victimisation in Australia from these sorts of crimes. Yeah, and that actually reminds me, uh, I was reading an article earlier this week about um, I forget what it's called, like, but like SIM hijacking where someone takes your, your mm. number and essentially can then, yep. because we tie a lot of our accounts to maybe uh, MFA through mobile phone notification, like through message notification, people are losing money and, and the targets are generally people who run their own business or have a small and, and medium enterprise business because that's yeah. the easiest, quickest way to get money if you don't have security around your phone number. Now, to me, that seems like something on the telcos because 
should it really be that easy to change someone's mobile number without them knowing? Like, I get that they're like, yeah. hey, if you've got, you don't let your personal information get out, but the personal information they require is just like name, date of birth, maybe last address, and then it's you can social engineer a, a telco help desk provider to then swap the number. Mm. Like, it seems like that in today's age of cybersecurity is inefficient. There should be a lot yeah, more thought around that. We investigated a bunch of them when I was back in the police, actually. I think they called it SIM swapping back then. Um, and, and pressure was put on the telcos mm. to do that. And the telco turned around and said, well, we never designed SIMs and phone numbers to be a security mechanism. And their pushback was like, we're not going to invest all this extra architecture into redesigning our whole platform uh, because you've decided to use it as a security mechanism. Uh, and some things have been done. So nowadays, most of the telcos will send you a text message to your old phone number before they transfer it to a new number. Um, so that if you see something from your provider saying, hey, your number's about to be swapped, you can, and it's not you, you can actually take action. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, the people I've seen that happen to, they generally go, well, that's just another phishing uh, SMS. So they ignore it. Yeah. Um, yeah. It has to be like an active thing to, further security it's the same as like mfa codes like a code where you get a code and then you have to enter it somewhere is better than just an acknowledgement button because some people will go oh yeah cool i'll click that button whereas if they have to do something if they're not sitting at the computer they physically can't do it so it adds that layer of security i did speak to one of the banks once who were looking at this problem and, and they realized they didn't have to send the verification messages to uh, the SMS number, they could send it via iMessage to iPhones. And there's mm-hmm. a similar service apparently for Androids as well, where it becomes a, an instant message rather than something through the phone service. Yeah. Um, well, I guess that goes to um, authentication apps, right? Like generally they're, yeah, they're yeah, better to use than, than just SMS. I guess, functionally, the, the telcos are just there to make money and want to make everything easy for their customers. So securities in that perspective, is not their primary concern. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting, like you talked just briefly about all the spam messages that we're getting. Um, and I'm sure this is probably the same around the world, but especially in Australia, like we've had one of our, our major telcos get hit. Also, just other major companies get hit where all our personal information is is in it, including telephone numbers. And there's definitely been a spike of SMS phishing, spam calls, like all those kind of things to do with your numbers. And it's gotten to the point now, even talking about politicians using it to spam their own agenda to people's mobile numbers, which everyone was very upset about. When we rely so much on our phone these days, not necessarily for calls and texts, but just for day-to-day life and and work, we don't want all that spam coming to us all the time. And it definitely feels like that's not a necessarily security thing, but it feels like it should be on the telcos because their networks are getting congested with all this spam. Like email filters, they email companies had to filter spam emails. Like otherwise people wouldn't use them. Yeah, it's an interesting problem. And it kind of comes back to like who owns, uh, who's responsible for cybercrime on on Australian citizens when it's low level and coming from overseas. Uh, You know, which organisation should be trying to take steps to manage it, mitigate it. It's a tricky problem to solve. Like the states aren't really, the state police forces aren't really structured to handle it. Mm. Um, and the federal authorities, I think, are 
kind of chasing bigger fish. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's a tricky one. I haven't seen a good solution yet. Yeah. I Hopefully, like within Australia, the, the new Socky Act's come out. Telcoms are counted as critical infrastructure now. They have to harden up their own systems to stop getting hacked. But also at the same time, maybe that then moves into, well, you need to protect your upstream and downstream. Your upstream is all your service providers to provide telecommunications, but then your downstream is your customers. And that that's us, like we're the end customers. So how are they protecting their um, financial investment, like the return yeah. that they're getting from yeah. us? Yeah. I guess the same way the bank is responsible for protecting your funds. And if it gets compromised, they wear it. Uh, yeah. Should the telcos have a similar responsibility and take yeah. similar steps? And I think banks went through this with all the banking Trojans um, years, like years ago, like we're talking 30, 40 years ago, banks had to go through this process when for them making mobile banking accessible made them more money because I think the statistics was if someone came into a bank and had to do a transaction, it cost them $7. But if you did that same transaction in your mobile app, it cost them $0.04. Cents. So the amount yeah. of profit margin they had was huge and they needed to instill the confidence in those apps. And to do that, they had to harden security for the end user. I think with how much the internet is around, and especially in the, when you look at the US, like internet is everywhere. In Australia, not so much. We're, we're too big and we don't really have the infrastructure for it. But if there's a solution out there where people could not sign up to a telco and still have calls and texts and use the internet, people would leave the telcos. Yeah, I guess it's only go that way when you have things like Signal and WhatsApp. Yeah, um, which all rely on, on data. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think that'll be interesting if that competition comes to head in Australia. Uh, mm. I think then the telcos will, will have a no shit moment where they're like, okay, we, we kind of need to step up our game with security a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, interesting to see what happens. Mm. So I guess we'll step back into how you were transitioning through the police force. Like it sounds like a lot of self-study learning on the job, which is always a really good opportunity to have when you're in that position. Was there any external courses, TAFE or uni or even certifications? Uh, I know yeah. you've done like some SANS courses later in your career, but just keen to hear about what you thought about those and how they helped you progress further to, to where you are now. Yeah, yeah, definitely SANS courses didn't come till later when I was actually in the private industry and, and that was funded for me, which was amazing. Um, and I didn't have that sort of money when I was back with the police. Um, I, I did do uh, CHFI, which is that Computer Hacking Forensic Investigator course. I didn't find that super helpful. Um, they may have changed their structure, but back then there wasn't much real lab work um, and being a bunch of you know, uh, documents that you kind of read through and did a multiple choice exam didn't give a lot of practical guide yeah. on how to do the work. Uh, I think they've changed their structure nowadays, so I can't say what it's like now. Um, eventually, I started putting myself through OSCP, which is that you know the computer hacking course. It's yeah. quite famous. It's yeah, the offensive security uh, hacking course. Yeah, yeah. So I I never actually passed that one. Um, but I had, actually I did pass it once, but I messed up the final report and they failed me because I put the wrong screenshot in, which was, which, uh, oh, devastating. Brutal. 
Yeah. <laughs> I called them. I even had the right hashes in the report, but because I had one screenshot wrong, they were like, no. Oh, brutal. Um, but I learned, I learned so much from doing that course. Like I, I got very good at Linux. Um, I learned the framework around, I guess, the MITRE attack chain. I learned how to, you know, run the scans, look for vulnerable applications, do brute forcing, do all that sort of stuff. Um, and the reason I did it is because it was relatively cheap compared to other options. And because I was a bit later in life, I figured I needed a big, almost like an adrenaline hit in my mm -hmm. education. I didn't want to wait three years to do a degree. I just needed to level up really quickly. Yeah. Uh, and I learned a ton from that. And it's um, always and good doing cross training, right? Like between mm. like what you were doing digital forensic wise and then learning that MITRE attack chain and, and the attack chain itself. Yeah, yeah, and actually running the tools like in the labs endlessly to try and get things to to hack. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just trying harder. Uh, I put it put in many, many hours into that and I learned a great deal. And I still things I do today are things I learned from that course uh and, and that eventually was a stepping stone out as well from the police mm -hmm. so I, I ran some decent investigations at cybercrime um and i you know n i met with people that worked in the private industry through those investigations i i think i like to think that because i studied so hard when i spoke to these people they could tell that i knew a little bit of what i was talking about you know, and, and when the appropriate moment came and all the investigations were finalised, I, I transferred over into private industry and got a job with uh, Klein & Co. With Nick Klein, who we both know. Like just touching on, I guess, that self-learning pathway. And, and OSCP, their tagline is try harder, which is meant to Nothing point. To say. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's def definitely the old course. I think now it's definitely gotten better with how much competition there is around pen testing courses. But yeah, at the okay. time it was kind of and and I felt this, so I've done the same course and when I when I did it, it felt very, hey, we don't have all the course content, so we're just gonna tell you to try harder to go learn things yourself through Google, which is uh very hard to do if you don't know what you're looking for. Um if yeah. you've got that jumping off point, it it is a lot easier. But I think the benefit out of that course was you can then go and say like look how much motivation I have. It's it's this proving what you can do given the time mm. and the resources and, and the opportunity yeah. to continue learning, which by the sound of what you were doing in police anyway, if you were articulating that, that shows that self-motivation to always learn something new to, to make your job easier or find more things and, and all that. Yeah, it's definitely that problem-solving mentality. Um it's the way you succeed in this industry. Uh, I think the the catch or the trick in OSCP was to fail quickly. Was was what me and my mates told each mm. other. Like you need to try something. Know you've tried it properly, and if it's not going to work, it's not going to work, and you move on to something else and you try something else. And you 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 have sufficient uh, technical knowledge and confidence in your skills that you know that you've tried it properly. You can fail quickly because you know that vulnerability or that exploit's not going to work, and you can go and try something else and keep chugging through. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that teaches you some foundational, it's not just the technical skills, but, you know, being disciplined and motivated and mm. you're a problem-solving mindset and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, that's actually a, a really good way of looking at it, like failing failing quickly. And it's that taking that first step to even start failing is, I think, a, lot mm. of, a hurdle for a lot of people when they're getting into something new is they're afraid of failing but not being afraid and just failing and continuing to grow your knowledge is, is good. 
Yeah, I, I think <laughs> red team or hacking is a definite uh, mindset where you just need to be uh, confident to give it a go and happy it doesn't work and just keep trying and trying and have a bit of a random element about you. I, I'm, I'm myself more process orientated. I, I think that's why I've fallen into the blue team side of things. I'd rather have a, I like solving problems and the challenge of that, but I like having a bit more of a workflow and a structure around it. Yeah. Uh, I find my friends that are really good at the red team stuff are a little bit more chaotic, very, very smart people, uh, but they just have a different approach and their approach and their mindset seems to lean them into that sort of work a bit better. Yeah. And it's, I guess, when you're solving a problem, you like to be able to solve it and then create the process behind it to make it repeatable, which leads back into the yeah. policing work, right? Like you have to have, it, it's that forensics background where it has to be repeatable because you yeah. might have to present it in court and you're going to have someone on the other side question it or retest all your all of your data. You have to have that repeatable process. Yeah, that's a good way to think about it. So through your career, like we know, like it sounds like in the policing, you've done quite a varied amount of um video forensic analysis, mobile phone forensic analysis, which, which falls under the bucket these days of, uh, I guess, policing digital forensics. But where do you see yourself in what areas you think you've been part of? And that includes like the you've done OSCP, so you've done some testing, some pen testing. Mm. If you could categorise broad areas of where you've worked in, what, what would be those areas? Yeah, so obviously I started in tr that traditional forensic. So you're taking a forensic image, uh, you're pulling it apart, you're seeing how it works, uh, you're using Cellbrite or whatever to, to pull the phone apart. So that that more traditional forensics, we're just looking at one device at a time. Um, mm -hmm. And then I've also worked to, you know as a detective doing investigations, so building briefs of evidence around what we find in the criminal offences and building, you know, putting all the logs together to make a brief and take something to court. Um, when I left the police, it was very much, I thought it was going to be similar sort of work. And then I realized very quickly it was a career change and that was more instant response. So it was moving yeah. away from, uh, traditional forensics. And I was, you know, I was fortunate enough to be there when Velociraptor was being designed by Mike Cohen and he worked a lot with my, our colleague, uh, Jay. So I was there when that was actually being developed and written and, and writing all the tools. So experiencing now, moving from this idea of a forensic image to, oh, cool, now we're going to do this at scale. We're, we're using Velociraptor to pull artifacts from thousands of endpoints, or we're mm -hmm. using Carbon Black to pull that, you know. So in, in that part of my career, I moved more into incident response. So suddenly it's compromises on networks, uh, which was another big learning curve and another big jump for me. But um, I didn't have that solid system admin background at all or networking background, but suddenly having to learn how networks worked and domain controllers worked and then understanding how threat actor moves through that system and then try and rebuild that set of actions that threat actors taken. So in that part of my career, I was, it was an instant responder. Uh, and nowadays I've changed again and I'm a team leader. So now it's more about yeah. building out systems and processes. So we have, I'm lucky to work with a very good team, uh, very smart people, uh, but we're still, we still have a way to go improving our processes and our systems and our our knowledge around how everything works. So nowadays I'm building those workflows. Yeah. And would you say with the, just briefly touching on the team these days, is it more instant response or is it more digital forensics, even if it's considered DFIR? Yeah. 
do a bit of everything. So we don't get a huge amount of data breaches because we have a pretty solid security stack, I like to think, is keeping us safe, but you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. Um, we're kind of a semi-sock in that we get all these alerts and we're constantly looking at phishing emails and different things. Yeah. Um, we do get data breaches with partners, which is always a bit tricky. Then it's assessing what they've got and managing that. Um it's a big variety of things. And then it's, you know, as we bring in new tools, you see a lot of new random alerts and suddenly you're back into a semi-IR mode yeah. to try and triage what's happened. And yeah. is this normal or is this something really bad? And yeah, it's, it's, it's good, good fun. Yeah, I always find with new tools, I, I kind of blame marketing for this, but I think for years it was marketed as, hey, if you buy this tool, it's your silver bullet, you're going to solve everything. But it takes quite a lot of knowledge and tuning of that tool to really get the value out of it, which all yeah. tools have value if you can manage it. But the way they're sold is just install it, let it run, you're good to go. Whereas I have never come across a tool personally that is monitoring, logging, responding, where that's the case. There's always tuning that has to happen. Yeah, it's ongoing. And mm-hmm. the, the big challenge is managing your business as usual as well as uplifting your processes and your tools and your systems at the same time. That's something we uh, have trouble managing with our resources. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's a challenge. It's a very common challenge across the industry that no one has enough resources to constantly uplift and do your business as usual, Mm. uh, which is why I usually think consulting exists because you're bringing in expert advice to try and help you upskill quickly or get to that milestone in the project that you need to. Uh, Cause if everyone had the resources, then there would be not really any reason for specialized consulting to exist. Yeah. Thinking about the roles that you've done in the past, like back to learning through policing and it doesn't have to be the current role, but what would you say is your favorite role? Like what did you have the most fun doing? And if you could probably do that for the rest of your, your career or, <laughs> Go back, like what would what would it be? I would say my, my favorite thing to do is just to get it, have a server and pull that apart, and being told, "Hey, this weird thing's happened, or it's it's been exploited in this way," and then trying to solve the puzzle of how the exploit happened and and build that attack chain back out again. Um, that's my favorite thing. Kind of sit down for three days, look at all the artifacts, like the raw forensic artifacts, and pull it apart and do that. I quite enjoy that process. Um, yeah, I don't think it's something I could do forever, but it, it was one of my favorite parts of my career was doing that. Yeah, it it's funny. All the people that I've interviewed, it's been slightly different in their answers to this, like about the particular mm-hmm. role that they want to do. But I think the common ground, which is why we all get into it, is just that problem solving. Like it's always a role yeah. where they're like, "Hey, some there's something that needs to be solved that hasn't been solved before, and I need yeah. to go do that." I think that's the common uh, delimitator between all the people. Yeah, that's nice to hear. It's yeah, it's a different big draw card for the for the industry and the career path is is having you build a toolkit, and the better your toolkit is, the bigger problems you can solve. And, yeah, um, being able to take that toolkit and apply it to a new problem, and then you know you're doing something you enjoy, you're good at, but you're also helping people. And that, that was actually the nice thing about being consultant is. Um, coming in to an organization and they've got this big problem and they're like, please help us. And you go, cool, we can help you. And you come in and because it's private, it's very slim. Like you're just giving them the services they want um, and being able to help them and provide that and solve the problems for them. I always really enjoyed that. Yeah. I think 
like personally thinking back to the the this was at uh, Cyber CX days that Simon and I both worked at the pro bono work that we sometimes did as well, mm. where it was your local council that couldn't afford the services, or it was individuals that had been hit by cybercrime and they turned everywhere else and it they kind of like weren't getting any traction. Those are the jobs that really stick in my mind the most because these were people that weren't technical at all, had been hit by something they don't understand and not all cases turned out very well. Like some were very heartbreaking, but you were coming in problem solving, working quite closely with them to, to help them get to a solution that, uh, like one of the cases I did, the data that we built, they could then take to the police because it provided them a stepping stone that they just didn't have the resources to get to. And that was really rewarding doing that kind of work. Yeah, I remember those cases. Um, mm. And even if we didn't get them the answer they wanted, at least they knew they'd tried everything. And sometimes yeah. that seemed to be enough for them. Yeah, it was uh, that it was, closure it, to some degree. Yeah. And you kind of highlighted a massive gap in the industry there. So it, it costs thousands of dollars to do a forensic analysis on a computer yeah. or a server to have it done properly. And the average person can't afford that. Um, yeah. So it's, you know, people that are victims of cybercrime and or, or think they might be, uh, generally devices is cheaper just to go buy a new computer or format it and start again than actually yeah. pay an expert to come in and help. It's a big gap. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I suppose because even when you look at, some of the companies that we responded to when we were there, they couldn't have afforded it if they didn't have insurance. The amount of investigation that had to happen, how much time you spent on it, reporting, that kind of thing, was all backed by an insurance write-off, essentially, uh, to do all that response. Yeah, that's true. And some of these were like non-for-profits, charities, that kind of thing, which is also heartbreaking in itself because they're doing work that helps the community but then get hit by this, but they didn't have the resources to secure their networks, which is tough. Yeah. I, th- I think the uh, insurance companies have tightened their policies now. I, I yeah, think we were there definitely. when the first kind of couple of years of claims came through on all those ransomware cases. And the insurance companies had a big shock realising that they'd overpromised and all the claims were coming in. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Moving on now to passion projects that you might have, cyber or, or otherwise, what keeps you occupied maybe outside of work yeah i don't do a lot of study outside work nowadays i I generally try and keep everything in my work hours um i am looking to do a little bit of more study uh soon i just want to get a certification i want to start collecting some certifications around our key forensic tools and the ones Mm -hmm. that are used for the industry um the advice i've been given and what i've seen when we we try to hire is it's very few people actually have a decent certification and a fundamental forensic tool like CrowdStrike or something like that. And mm-hmm. it seems to be those people will, will always be quite desirable when they're looking for jobs outside of work. I try and keep, I've been listening to a lot of podcasts recently from Andrew Huberman and, and uh, Dr. Andy Galpin and yep. reading some of Peter Tia's stuff around, you know, long, now that I'm a little bit older, <laughs> <laughs> looking at the, the longevity stuff and uh, yeah. the training around that. Uh, so mountain bike riding and without paddle boarding this morning in 10 degrees, but it was a beautiful morning for it. <laughs> Too and, cold for uh, me to be on the water, that's for sure. It's actually pretty nice. Put the wetsuit on and my feet went numb, but otherwise <laughs> it was a beautiful morning. <laughs> yeah, they're doing that sort of work. 
yeah training getting getting to the point now where it's less hectic we were talking just before we we jumped on the call but about how when you're doing instant response and you're on call you essentially knew mm. that your weekend was gone because someone would get ransomware and you would lose that work-life balance from being on call essentially yeah i'm definitely enjoying uh, we're definitely very, very busy. I'm probably busier now than I was before mm. during my day, during my business hours, but uh, a little bit less outside those core hours nowadays, which is a nice change to yeah. have that balance back. Having that balance with your, with your family and the things that you want to do to unwind. Yeah. What is your goal for the next six to 12 months? Career-wise, do you have somewhere that you're aiming for? Do you want to learn something new in the six to 12, six to 12 months? Like you talked about mm. some of the collecting certifications kind of thing, but what else do you have in your horizon that you've got in that short, medium term? Yeah, within the next 12 months, um, I'm hoping that we can get well current security tools, like have solid workflows and playbooks down for everything. Um, we're pretty fortunate to have a permanent red team within our organization as well. Yeah, that's pretty, uh, pretty yeah. rare, but that's cool. Yeah, it is. Uh, we've got good people, luckily, and we've mm. um, had a bit of a vision about how it should work and we're lucky enough to have a team there. So once we've got our processes properly laid down, I'm very much looking forward to working, doing more challenges with them, like getting them to really test us. And when they run their scans and do their pen tests, go back through my tools with them and see what we missed and what we saw um, and then just improve that way and then as we capture more and more things that they can level up their game and, and just play that for a couple of years. I think it'll be a lot of fun. Yeah. No, that sounds really cool. So I'm interested to know when you were a little kid, what did you want to be like thinking six, seven years old, we all have these ideas in our head about what adult life is like and what jobs we can do. My, my old man is a, a plumber by trade. So he started off there and I was like, as a kid, you always see these stories about like, you're going to follow your, your parents' footsteps into into the career. And I decided I went out on a work site with my dad once. As being a plumber, you have to crawl under houses where there's lots mm. of spiders. And I was like, nope, not going to do that. <laughs> and that, that ended my aspiration of following my dad's footsteps to be a plumber and a builder quite quickly. But what about yourself? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I never really knew what I wanted to do. And I, I still didn't know when I... Um, finished high school and I ended up going to the police because I didn't really know what else to do. And I just, <laughs> I knew I didn't want to sit in front of a computer all day. Um, even though that's where I've ended up. <laughs> Full circle. Yeah. Funny how I ended up. Um, yeah. Always really uncertain growing up. I did do some advanced computer studies through high school, um, but it didn't really turn into something I wanted to do straight away. So I think I needed to walk my journey and that where I am. Yeah. I think it's interesting talking to everyone, uh, whether on the podcast or outside, is because the industry is maybe so young, it's because of this, or maybe it's because of the way industry and companies are these days, but everyone jumps around quite a lot into different careers and different pathways before they have got to this role where everyone seems happy with where they are now like they can see themselves growing their career in cyber whether it's being uh, a responder or a pen tester and they may want to shuffle around but under the um, umbrella of the cyber jobs there are but 
they never really had a clear idea until they found something that clicked with them internally. And they're like, hey, this is something I can see myself doing and, and be happy problem solving and uh, mm. and growing in that role. I think working from home has made a big difference too. Like it, mm. it's different now. Like working from home, I can go jump in my gym during my lunch break four yeah. days a week and it's, it's not an issue. It's, mm. I'm just using the same amount of time for my lunch break and it's uh, working in front of a computer is a bit different now when you've lost that commute time. Yeah. It's really nice. Yeah. And especially if you can get that balance where if you have a family at home balancing, you're gaining that commute time back with maybe more time with your kids or more time yeah, with your partner yeah. and that kind of thing. So that adds that extra layer of benefit, I guess. Actually, another side project I've been bouncing around for a while is I've, mm. I've got a lot of random notes that I've collected over the last few years from all my courses and everything. And <laughs> I would like to sit down at some stage and collate them all. Um, I, I also have some, some personal ideas about forensic analysis. I'd like to flesh out a little bit more. Um, it's around this idea of baselining and pivoting. So it's something I find with analysis. And, and I, I find this is a bit of a shortcoming, even in the SANS courses, is they won't show you so much how to investigate something. Like they'll show you how to run a timeline or look at the forensic artifacts, but not so much how to, you know, go from like what's, I don't know what's happened to the end result. Yeah. Um, and one of the things or processes I've found useful over the years is the idea of, you see something weird and then you can pivot off it from one of three ways. So you can look geographically, temporarily, or by tactics. So geographically is like what's in the same location on that computer. Temporarily is like what happened around the same time. And tactics is like has that tactic occurred elsewhere in the environment. And you also you have to keep stopping and baselining. So you see something weird that you don't recognize. Is that normal across the environment? Um, and then you kind of jump back and forth through this process and, and taking by following that approach, you can eventually build out the attack chain by using a toolkit and your knowledge of forensic artifacts. You can build out this chain of events. Um, I'd like to try and, you know, flesh out all my notes from the last couple of years and also build on that idea to see if I can make some sort of decent workflow around it. That would actually be, it's something that I've thought about because it comes up in once you reach a certain level, the question is, I know how to investigate. How do I teach an associate or a junior that mm. uh, what I call the investigative mindset, which I think has been in literature before, but it's that scientific method almost of you come up with a hypothesis, then you use your skills to get the data, and then you're interpreting it for what the user did. And it's definitely something that I want to come back and revisit later on the podcast. Like I, I had thought to create kind of like a panel and this could be really interesting to have you back on um, once you've you. put those together. But I was also going to get uh, our old colleague Gary as well because he's taught quite a lot of, of juniors when his time at CyberCX. So what is needed at a base level to start teaching someone that? And then how do you continually develop that? Because for for me and you, that's just experience, right? But how do you quantify that into how do you learn it? Like what do you need to step through yeah. to, to learn that mindset yeah. and to learn? And it's an, an ever-growing skill set. Like it's definitely not something that I've mastered, but you get yeah. to a certain level where you feel comfortable doing investigations and you're like, okay, I, I know how to start. I know how to get to that next step. Yeah. It's also identifying the pitfalls, I think. Like you 
you know, this idea of rabbit holing where you see something yeah. interesting and you want to play with this new tool. I did this yesterday actually, where I was helping someone out with a problem and we had uh, these PDF files going out to this weird email address and we're going, oh, that looks bad and that could be malware and, you know, the, the user saying, no, I didn't send those emails out and we dug and dug and eventually I took a step back and went, okay, let's baseline that email address and, you know, suddenly it's everywhere in the system and there's tickets for it back five years. We realised one of our systems is like sending some error messages out and if I had this idea, if I would didn't rabbit hole and I'd stopped and baselined that first, I wouldn't have wasted half an hour. Um, it's just constantly learning, constantly making mistakes and, and trying to refine that process. All right. So stepping away from work now, what do you do to unwind? Like you mentioned paddleboarding and, and mountain biking and you mm. do your gym sessions through the day to kind of release some of that tension. But what's your kind of go-to? Do you read for enjoyment, binge watch something on Netflix? Like you've got a, a family as well, so obviously keeping kids entertained yeah. and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I very much like being outside, especially being stuck in front of the computer all day. And the older I get, the more I like to go outside and just have a walk. I've got a little uh, cattle dog that always loves to get out and have a bit of a run around. Um, and then it's just spending time with the family, trying to get and on the weekends for a mountain bike ride or a paddleboard or something like that. And that, that tends to get me through the week. I think it's a common sentiment is when you're doing something so much, you enjoy the opposite, which is going out and doing hikes or, or being in nature mm. and touching some grass and that kind of thing. Finally, the last question we want to leave on with is what kind of recommendations would you have for people that are outside the industry and considering a change? Yeah, I was thinking about this. So definitely look for ways in your current industry where you can start to be more technical or do semi-forensic sort of projects or enhance current systems in your current job. Um, for me, it was, you know, looking at call charge records and, and learning more things about Excel. Excel will always be a fundamental forensic tool. So <laughs> get good at that. I've, I've said um, this on a previous interview, but Excel is the greatest forensic tool ever made. Yeah. If you can't do VLOOKUPs and pivot tables, then just stop whatever else you're doing and go and do that. <laughs> then come back to your current course. And then it's, it's just doing, there's lots of good free courses out there. Um, some of them are crap, some of them are good. And like, even if it's something you already know, someone might spin it in a different way. I, I dropped into, I think it was Let's Defend, which is a mostly free course. And I knew most of it already, but there was like 10 or 20% there for some mm. things that I hadn't seen before. Um, so I'd say look around for the cheap courses on Udemy or the free ones and just drop in and out of different courses and learn different skills. Yeah. Um, the third thing I'd say is just test, like build a virtual machine or virtual box, um, use atomic indicators, which is, I think it's put out by Red Canary that can just emulate threat actors action. Like it'll drop a malicious PowerShell script. And so run that atomic indicator and then um, the MITRE attack chain will tell you what to look for. So then go and look for those artifacts and just do, do little tests and challenge yourself to see if you can find these things and work them out. And if you can't find them, uh, work out what went wrong. So why why isn't that artifact there? Um, yeah. so a combination of, you know, find technical opportunities in your current job, do lots of little free courses, and then just test and play with things. After we finish this in the show notes, um, I'll get your ideas around what you think some of the good free courses are because I know someone looking in that's not in the industry, it, it can be quite daunting knowing where to start, I think. Mm -hmm. So uh, we'll get some of those links. We'll chuck them in the show notes. 
for the atomic indicators uh, with Red Canary and running them on virtual machines, on my YouTube, I already have a video on how to set up a virtual machine and, and get yeah. started in that sense. But uh, that's a good idea, and I'll make some content around the basis of how to kick off that so uh, you know where to where to start if you're completely new and you want to get into it as well. But, yeah. Actually, you might have put out a, some free courses around their attack chain. Mm. Um, it, it can always be a bit dry starting with that sort of theory, but I think understanding the MITRE attack chain is just fundamental to what yeah. we do, Like, and everyone should do that as a starting point. Yeah. When I talk about certifications and uh, picking what you're doing next is I always say pick where you want to get to and then decide how to get there. Uh, that can be hard in the start, but a, a good base certification, I think, personally, because it was one that I did right at the beginning, was um, SEC Plus because it teaches you the fundamentals. And it's you can do all the content for free. You don't have to pay for it. If you want to get the cert, you can pay for that and sit the exam. But having a, a foundations in general cyber is always a good way to start, I find. And I have I've noticed the difference with people I've met in my career, like the people who've done they learn the fundamental forensic artifacts and the fundamental ideas opposed to those who kind of come into the tools and they learn forensics through the tools. And I think they find it a bit harder to transition. Um, whereas if you know the foundations, you can pick up any tool. You can just go read the documentation for a couple of days and yeah. you'll pick it up pretty quick. Yeah. Because like talking specifically about tools, a lot of the more advanced tools that you would use try and contextualize the data that you're looking at in terms of human interactions, whereas different tools will contextualize it differently. So then cross-interpreting between the tools becomes difficult if you don't mm. have those fundamental skills. And then setting limitations then as well. Mm. Mm. Well, mate, it's been excellent having you on and chatting through your career and touching on all the different points and getting your insight to what you think people have. So I just want to say thanks for spending some time with us on your weekend and chatting and hopefully the listeners get something out of your pathway and, and your story that you've had. Yeah, thanks for having me, Daisy. I appreciate it. Good to catch up. Yeah, has been. Now, nearly all of the content will be free, but if you want to support, make sure you subscribe to the podcast, like and subscribe to the YouTube channel, and if you're feeling charitable, unfortunately not tax deductible, head over to my Buy Me A Coffee to either make a donation or sign up for a membership. All links will be in the show notes, but for a hub of all content, please head to my website, hardlyadequate.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you all later on.